Happy Valentine's Day, my love, and welcome back to this week's episode of the One Take Wonder with the Hot Weird Girl. New episodes come out every Monday at 7.30, unless they don't. Um, still working on those sound issues, but so many wonderful, gracious people have reached out to help. I'm learning a lot. Thank you. To everyone who's like emailed, DM, texted, it means a lot, and I'm going to leave a more formal thank you in the bio, but I really want to jump into this week's episode, mostly so that the ideas of this week's episode don't escape me. I want to talk about the social expectations of beauty, and I think I've touched on this topic, sort of dabbled in it a little bit. Last season, um, when I talked about selling you out for a Diet Coke and this idea that there are super thin influencers who are encourage you to engage in this like binge eating or telling you that certain foods are actually healthy which goes against actual you know scientific knowledge about what foods can provide you the best nourishment as sort of this like quasi competition thing um in defense of teenage girls in this season in the last episode i touched on this idea that beauty is supposed to be something you you are supposed to be beautiful as a woman you're not supposed to talk about being beautiful and i think we're actually going to regress in terms of the progress we made but i've never fully expanded on that idea so i want to do that now and i guess i want to first establish that Women are expected to be beautiful, which feels like such a duh statement, but it has to be said. Women are expected to be beautiful, and for a very long time in modern Western history, we were expected to be beautiful without burdening um, our male partners with rituals or making it obvious to society that we were attempting to be pretty. And there's something really interesting about the role of advertisement and sort of unveiling women's secret rituals, things that had been passed down from mother, from grandmother, aunts, and cousins to make you the most appealing in your small town, in the church pew, in the big city, wherever you are, to make you this beautiful girl. And then adverts and specifically advertising to women came in and really took what was supposed to be secret knowledge and attempted to sell it to you like you know you can lose a little weight by going on amphetamine but that is not an ozempic ad i'm just thinking about something from the late 40s early 50s or you know put this pond's cold cream on your face another 50s era but pond still slaps put these 50s era cold cream on your face and make all your beauty marks disappear overnight you'll think about the opening to marvelous mrs Maisel, which i think in addition to being a great show is also a great period piece on the expectations of women at the time even though there's a humorous twist where she gets up before her husband and she engages in the entire beauty routine right she slept with rollers in her hair she slept with a thick cold mask that was really popular at the time um I guess the equivalent now would be like a very thick moisturizer and then she gets up puts a full face on takes her rollers out puts on a more attractive nightgown so that she can still be sexually appealing in her sleep lays down closes her eyes and lets her husband believe that when the alarm goes off he's the one that has to stop repeatedly hitting snooze and he's the one that wakes her up this beautiful little creature who doesn't you know go to bed late and wake up early trying to make herself look better for him because that was the expectation at the time that you would engage in these beauty rituals that wouldn't burden your husband and at the same time through all of this we still had women's magazines right like the pop not pop culture but the cultural way of telling women how they should and shouldn't behave but they were so heavily segregated by gender not that men couldn't read them but why would a man want to know what a stupid bitch i'm trying not 
what a stupid girl is doing. I was so close. What are we? Five minutes into four minutes into this podcast. Good Lord, I got to work on myself. Demonstrating all these ways to be beautiful and somewhere along the way. And God, I would love to really sit down and invest. Maybe that'll be my follow up episode to this, but really sit down and investigate where in the time period did beauty stop being something we were so secretive about and start being something that was very openly discussed, not just in a way to get us to buy products, because advertisements have always been open that like you need CoverGirl lipstick, you need this Marilyn Monroe bra, you need these specific rollers, you need these earrings, you need this hairspray, you need this from the TikTok shop, you need these glasses, are you a coquette girl? Then you wear bows and you need to shop at this store, you need to do this. I'm not talking about that, although that in itself can sort of be a cultural knowledge that's passed down because, and this is a little divergence, um, advertisements have a huge role in our cultural traditions, not just in how we gather around Super Bowl ads or how we consume, but one of my favorite Adam Ruins Everything episode was about this, um, was about recipes that were supposedly passed down from grandma, but they were actually manufactured by like Nestle Toll House and like ragu or whatever the old time equivalent of ragu was to make people think that these advertisements like, oh, you can have this home cooked meal, but we'll make it for you or we'll simplify the ingredients. Like instead of, you know, going out and sourcing everything we're just going to tell you which products to buy at the store to make this dip and then that sort of became passed down through families as like this is my grandma's recipe this is my great aunt's recipe and everyone loved it and it's like yeah that's everyone's recipe because it was put on the back of a craft box and told you to buy other craft products to put in it and while it may still be good it was not an original creation that's been like a family held secret and I think about beauty being passed down in that way that the way these advertisements told you to apply mascara for influence or apply mascara for, um, blah, for instance, taught you how to keep your mouth open or to splash your face over the sink. All the little things we do every day that have been so heavily pushed to us in ads that they became part of our everyday life and then we pass those down to our children. But at some point, it became open and normalized to discuss how we're making ourselves beautiful and that's where I think today the influencer the beauty creator really thrives because everyone wants to know how to get beautiful eyeshadow but not a lot of people can walk into a makeup store and know what to buy and now you had like these early YouTube tutorials morphing into Instagram and TikTok content all the ways that we pass down knowledge that's supposed to be reserved for rituals. Like, I think I've mostly grown up in a time where you're supposed to openly go to your girlfriends and just talk about what are you doing to make yourself prettier and you don't care that you're doing it in front of boys or on the internet. And I say we're going to go backwards because of two things, aging and weight. Now, the weight thing, someone brought up in my topic and suggestions um, feedback box, which, by the way, if you are a Spotify user, you can talk directly to me and let me know what you want me to talk about. I read all of them. They mean a lot to me and they often come up in my podcast. So to read this comment that was left. Talk more about the movement from, quote, fixing, unquote, beauty insecurities to it becoming taboo about wanting to fix insecurities. I see this a lot with Ozempic. I wanted to talk about the Ozempic part because weight loss and the the 
evil way fat people are treated right the evil way that fat people's desire and I guess I should quantify again if you haven't listened to the past episode I'm not saying fat is a pejorative but it's from my understanding from actually doing the work and listening to body positive activists that like dancing around the word fat reinforces the idea that there's a negative connotation to it it's not a dirty word it's not a bad word it's a neutral descriptor and I also think it kind of does a disservice to be like oh like heavier no she's not fat she's just wider like just fucking just call a spade a spade because they know and they're aware if I'm wrong as always feel free to correct me but this is just what I was taught to approach these conversations with and I like to approach conversations with authenticity fat people's desire for acceptance has been exploited as a marketing tactic like the best way to describe this would be the shrinking market for plus size fashion there's never been a comprehensive super stylish equal market for plus size fashion and when I say equal market one that compares to straight sizes so straight sizes would be like your small medium large extra large extra small included in that as well there just has never been that for plus size people but starting in like 2016 when the body positivity which had already been a movement online um I think for about a decade prior was really starting to get mainstream legitimacy at that point Tess Holiday had already been on Cosmo a few years ago we were starting to get more plus size models brands started seemingly invest investing in plus size clothing and you know putting larger clothes on the racks and investing in cute garments because if you have never looked at the state of plus size fashion it's a lot of like peplum and floor a lot of it's just really fucking swearing a lot of it's just really ugly it's not cute it is the number one complaint about plus size fashion and the second complaint would be that it's not actually formulated to like complement or fit large bodies well like certain areas of a pant would need reinforcement in like the inner thigh or certain types of fabric may not be you know super comfortable um the way that the cut of a shirt that would fit on a smaller person who doesn't have as large of a belly or a belly at all on someone who may have an apron belly there's just a difference in those considerations oftentimes even if there are like 2x 3x 4x 5x sizes aren't actually being offered to really make these clothes good for the fat people that obviously want to look cute and fly and brands just essentially capitalized off of the very valid desire of fat people to be given clothes which can so often be like there's a dignity and not being able to wear what you want because of your size and knowing that companies are fully able to make the clothes but that it's simply just better for them not to because it appeases their clientele to know like oh this brand only goes up to a size eight or they don't carry above a large or like a brandy melville sort of situation and so you know that's a great example of how terribly fat people are treated and Ozempic makes a lot of people angry because it's seen as taking the easy way out we correlate weight loss with punishment I think it's why it's such a hard thing for people to engage in not just I mean weight loss in itself can be difficult but the psychological aspect that you think of the biggest loser being one of the biggest tv shows of the early 2000s and I used to watch that with my family it was in hindsight we talked about this like a couple thanksgivings ago that was a very crazy thing to be watching and then we would turn on flavor of love which i solely believe that i could write an entire dissertation about flavor of love and what we learned about race class 
the failing state of z-list rappers and how they can redeem themselves through pop culture and then monique's charm school on vh1 like that would also have to be part of the thesis thesis because so much to say but back to what i was trying to say this idea that like weight loss is a punishment it's meant to be grueling there are obviously ways to engage in healthy weight loss that don't involve you like doing crossfit and blowing your back out and eating unseasoned chicken and boiled right like just 1950s garbage space food but that would take the humiliation out of what we associate with weight loss in reality you could just eat smaller portions and eat more nutritious dense food high protein high fiber that'll keep you satiated longer and just engage in exercise literally two more days a week and that is the best scientifically proven scientifically proven um, that is the best method that yields long-term results crash dieting will not yield long-term results because it's not an actual lifestyle change and Ozempic, the perception is, oh, you shoot yourself in the stomach and then you don't have an appetite and the weight is coming off. And that's why I think there's so much anger over what like the Ozempic misinformation, because Ozempic, like all, if they think they're called GLP-1 drugs, can also be a cure for diabetes or not a cure, but a medication to alleviate the symptoms of diabetes. And it has been for a long time, but now they're discovering that drugs like Ozempic and Wigovi um, can also curb things like binge eating even alcoholism and so they're being prescribed more and more and managing weight loss because another psychological aspect of weight loss is usually once you get to a certain size it's indicative of a psychological issue like there's a certain point where when you're pushing your body to overeat every day like 99 percent of the time that has a negative mental component associated with it and that the weight is really a manifestation of some pretty unhealthy things going on mentally and if Ozempic can curb that food chatter in your head, if that can help you seek therapy or, you know, whatever you may need to do personally to assist yourself, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is it's not seen as a punishment. The problem is, is that it happens rather quickly. A year on Ozempic makes you look very different than a year just dieting and exercising. I'm going to be real. You definitely get smaller faster on Ozempic, on Wagovi, on other GLP-1 weight loss injections. And people are claiming that, oh, they're taking away medication from diabetics. Okay, as someone who's very well acquainted with the law and medicine, I promise you that there is not some secret reserve of medicine that can't continue to be produced by the companies who are making millions hand over fist by expanding their market, which is FDA approved, by the way, um, for weight loss stuff that is permanently depriving diabetics of their medication have there been temporary you know runouts of the medication yes but that's not unprecedented it happens to me with my adhd medicate well when i was taking it adhd medication it happens with other medication particularly um you know since 2020 when there are all these manufacturing shortages and that just is now a new daily reality for god knows how long there are shortages in being able to manufacture certain drugs but it's not going to be permanent and we're already seeing that now that companies know that they have to keep up with the increased demand of diabetics and people who are seeking to lose weight they've already produced more of the drugs so why this has been a prevailing narrative for a year and a half i truly think just exists to capitalize on this anger that like oh well look at this fat person getting so skinny 
you know what? I'm going to try to intellectualize my anger and connect it to a bigger social issue. Look how people with disabilities are also being deprived of their medication. As if Wagovia and Ozempic are not actual legitimate medications to fix a medical issue in some people. And as I said last episode, you're not supposed to have such frank conversations about weight. You're not supposed to try to say I'm trying to become skinny. So there's also that, you know, social aghastness, right? Like, how dare they? And I think aging is absolutely going to become the same way. I think it is going to be very gauche and very taboo to say, okay, I'm getting facelifts, I'm getting fillers, not because the underlying desire to want to be youthful and this idea of youth that we kind of discussed in depth last episode is like very full cheeks, almost like pubescent looking faces. Um, because of all this current discourse about aging, you shouldn't want to age. And all it does is really put women and femmes in boxes where you like can't, like you're damned if you do, you can't, if you're damned if you don't. The Barbie monologue 101. And I'm saying all this to say, and pardon me if I repeated myself from the last episodes, but I really wanted to get to this, you know, final point or the conclusion part of this that I think the beauty trend is going to be this version of naturalness. Whether or not you're actually wearing a tinted moisturizer or that's really just how beautiful your skin looks, whether or not you have a high metabolism or whether you're just on a calorie deficit, whether or not you've been using retinols since a very young age and sunscreen and getting chemical peels and fillers and lasers and doing pretty much everything possible to make sure that you have plump, blemish-free skin. It all has to go into the perception that you're not trying. The newest beauty trend is, and I think will continue to be for honestly as long as I'm young. And remember, I think I'll be young until I'm like 40. Um, Look how much they're not trying and look how hot they are. Because I think trying also became too accessible to too many people. When we started spilling these beauty secrets, when we made it apparent to everyone that there are legitimate steps you can do and follow that can be replicated by normal people, not celebrities or the uber wealthy people who we automatically assume like, I can't really look like them or they're trying to sell me because that's an interesting point where we are in our our culture. I don't think we've ever distrusted um, media institutions and particularly celebrities as good indications of lives that we can live. I think we're beginning to understand that like they are a product and they're selling us something. We can buy into that, but it's not representative of real life. So to see everyday people really change their skin with a certain product, that is making hotness more attainable to the masses And beauty only, like, if everyone's beautiful, no one is, right? Like, Sinbad from The Incredibles. I'm going to make everyone special so that no one can be special. If everyone can make themselves very good looking, then you've got to have a way to elevate other people above others. And those people that are elevated will always be people who conform to beauty standards, a la all the oppressive systems that we live under in our society, right? But we have got to find a way to make sure that those people are still distinguishable so they can serve as an ideal. So if anyone can make themselves skinny or hot with surgery, with makeup, with whatever, then it it can't be enough to buy yourself into beauty. It's got to be something that you're born with. It's almost the 
divine right doctrine of beauty, that European ideal that kept the monarchy in power and still, you know, in some European countries does today, this idea that there's this, I'm forgetting the actual term, but there's this doctrine to rule oh my god my european history teacher would be so mad at me i took that class in ninth grade it's someone let me know in the comments but basically this idea that kings are destined to rule because they are picked by god and that's what makes them different from the common folk even though they look and talk and may sound the same they are different because they are spiritually superior i think that is what hotness is going to become you were born hot because too many people are accessing methods to all become beautiful and it's dampening the allure around beauty when guys won't go bald anymore because they can fly to turkey and get a hair transplant when like teeth Teeth is a really good indication in America of the um, class divide, right? Because braces are very expensive. And if your parents were able to get you braces, get you braces growing up, um, your parents had some sort of money. You can look at someone's mouth and depending on how their teeth look, if they weren't born with perfectly straight teeth and if they don't have, you know, somewhat straight teeth as an adult, you can assume that like, okay, your parents could not afford orthodontics. But now you can just go get veneers, which why people are letting braces by Brenda play in their mouth. And like, what did that one girl say in an interview? In an anonymous interview, this girl said that gluing on veneers, which I know is not the proper term, but she was using veneers in this context, is like gluing on acrylics. Letting those people play in your mouth is crazy. But for as much as I like to make fun of veneers and say that people are going to have chiclet teeth in 10 years, you can actually go to like foreign doctors where they do have, you know, high standards of medicine, Mexico, Colombia. And as long as you do your research, you can actually get veneers and just keep going back and getting routine maintenance done on them. And now suddenly you have crossed that class divide that like, okay, well, nobody can tell by my mouth, especially if you get well done veneers, not those Steve Harvey Horth's teeth, but like well done veneers that I can have money. So there has to be an indistinguishable way. I think it's the idea of the quiet luxury trend. And you know how I feel about quiet luxury, but this idea that the row is selling um, really beautiful but basic pieces. And so the thing that distinguishes the row from another basic piece that you would pick up at a low-end store like Gap or H&M is the construction, the quality of the material, even though it's imperceptible to the untrained eye. And now beauty is going to be something that is going to be imperceptible to the untrained eye and the trained eye will be able to tell the born hotties from the main hotties. And I think part of this animus in the made hotties is all the projections that we place on female influencers as if they're the people who are responsible for all of misogyny. And again, as I discussed in the In Defense of Teenage Girls episode, this idea that the people who are publicly showing how much they're grappling with absurd misogynistic standards are to blame for those absurd misogynistic standards. And now that we've discussed something serious, I want to transition into something fun because someone asked me, what are my thoughts on Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey? And the Super Bowl just happened. So I want to, by the way, let me just say this. I don't really understand sports like Ghost Steelers, Stairway to Seven. But, like, uh, do I know the rules of football? I do know that I don't like the Chiefs. I do know that this is the second year in a row that I've watched Mahomes do a blood sacrifice in the locker room and then come out and make it work in, like, the last few minutes. What he did to the Eagles, 
obviously this did not happen but at the same time i would put money down that they gave him drugs in that back room illegal drugs that you're not supposed to have in the nfl and that's why his ankle is fixed or it was just a percocet and some steroids but either way witchcraft what they were able to pull in overtime witchcraft insane i want them to lose because like i don't want this to be another patriot situation and i know my boyfriend would be so pissed because apparently he thinks like Mahomes is a goat I, I don't want to deal with this I don't want to have another like Brady on our hands a man whose helmet is talking to him like the green goblin to get back into football and that's why he lost his family what do you think like I'm less interested in Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey's relationship because I think Travis Kelsey loves attention I think he's been trying to be famous like I remember when he was with his ex Kayla he was constantly trying to get in the blogs very funnily enough um, he lost that little accent, but he kept the fade and his love of rap music, so I don't know. But anyway, I, I'm, I don't think their relationship is fake. I'm not a Taylor Swift fan. Like, I can respect what she's done as, like, a businesswoman, but her music just... And I've tried because some of my closest friends from college, like, they're big Swifties. So I've gone to many a bachelorette party, many uh, a night out where Taylor Swift is pretty much the only thing on the audio menu. Cannot do it. Cannot do it at all. It sounds like I'm trapped in a Coles. She's got a couple bangers, but mostly I just feel like I'm trapped in a Coles. Not even like a Macy's, like a Coles. Nonetheless, her music does speak to millions of people. And so my own sole opinion, I'm not going to say like, oh, she's a bad artist. Like she clearly makes good music. I'm just not the target demographic. What do her and Ice Spice talk about? That's my real question to you. Please let me know because I saw a TikTok today and it was like, oh no, she's just trying to use Ice Spice to get to like the black demographic. Okay, she's so famous, she doesn't have to do that. Like, I and I know a lot of black Swifties. I'm not sure why the internet narrative is like only white girls listen to her when I personally know so many Swifties of color. People are like, oh, you look at her concerts, they're not the majority. Yeah, that's sort of being a minority in America. Like, how many spaces are we the majority? You know what I mean? But I do know many women of color who listen to Taylor Swift. And also considering that she's one of the most famous artists globally. Like, I don't, I don't think she needs this. I'm beginning to think that she's genuinely friends with Ice Spice, which is... What do they talk about? Like, Ice Spice and Lana Del Rey? I could see that. I could see that because Lana desperately wishes that she was born in a trailer park, but she'll settle for being, like, sort of from a bad New York neighborhood. Ice Spice is from the Bronx, very proud of her heritage. They could bond over that. They could bond over New York and, like, grimy guys who do them dirty. But Taylor Swift? And they clearly seem to be friends like some celebrities go to the, i guess i should explain they were in the same box at the super bowl now some celebrities go to the super bowl because brands will bring them there because it is extremely expensive to get to the super bowl take google the price of a ticket most celebrities don't have liquid cash like that and then even the ones that do probably don't have to spend the money to get to the super bowl as much as they get sponsored or someone brings them there like okay you're signed to capital records well capital records gets like 40 super Bowl. that's probably too high but 40 super bowl tickets to whatever but i firmly believe because taylor is dating travis kelsey and also because taylor is a billionaire that she's like that that box situation was like a family and friends box and so she just brought ice spice and their song together was bad but 
I guess they're friends. Another pop culture request was to talk about the Percy Jackson series. If you didn't know, I've been obsessed with Percy Jackson since the first time I read it at 13. Percy Jackson girl all the way. That being said, the author will suffer for what he did for Aphrodite. And like the fact that the pretty people were stupid and useless that's a trope that needs to die because I prove that you can be pretty and smart every day and I just I didn't feel very represented by that I love the Percy Jackson series dare I say there were certain plot points in the book or I'm sorry in the show that were better than the book getting to see Grover's point of view I assume that in the uh, Titan's curse we'll see more of Annabeth's point of view because she's essentially gone for like the first half of the book just holding up that rock pushing the rock up for at or no sorry holding the sky for atlas it would be nice to watch her suffer through okay well that sounds bad but like suffer through that situation i really liked that they made percy more angry at his father in the beginning because that made more sense to me right like in the book percy's like my father's a deadbeat i've got all these half siblings i'm at a camp for people who basically are with all their half siblings because our parents baby mama or baby daddy sucks and abandoned us and also incredibly slutty and i'm gonna use i'm not gonna be mad at myself for saying that like the gods are some sluts that's disgusting to have that many kids hermes Ugh. use a condom or something on olympus i mean the fact that his cabin was so overrun and some of them weren't his kids but some of them were disgusting put him on child support and get him neutered so it never made sense to me that book percy's like my father has claimed to me and yes i have some weird feelings but i am going to battle with chronos over him like it would actually take a lot to convince me to battle chronos god of the time i have no idea how long this episode is this is gonna be so funny later when i look at analytics to see at what point people dropped out i'm gonna suspect right here it's such an insane premise that's why it was so fun to read and so fun to watch and why i go back to it every year i listen to the audiobook which i'm gonna say this if you listen to the audiobook the narrator does Asian voices very poorly. Um, he, and when I say that, exactly what you think it sounds like, that's exactly what it is. That part always makes me uncomfortable, especially because in the later part of the series, one of the um, antagonists is Asian and he does get a lot of dialogue, particularly in the fifth book and how he relates to being a son of like a lesser god and they don't get respect at a camp half but like that part is crazy i just i had to let you know because don't say that i recommended you something and you got caught off guard but like the first three uh yeah the first three audiobooks pretty good four and five you're on your own i wouldn't listen i think it's fine because this person asked what is my perspective on adults obsessed with media read during their childhood? I think it's fine to be obsessed with something you loved as a child. I just think it's also important to realize that, like, this is a show for children. Some of the people watching Percy Jackson, they're like, well, why isn't Gabe, Percy's stepdad, um, hitting Sally? Oh, but Gabe, because that's too dark to show to a target demographic of 12-year-olds. And it was different in the books because it was so subtly implied. And there was really only one sentence where Percy's like, and then I just realized gabe is beating my mom but like you know what disney actually doesn't have to show that and also this is disney i have no notes back to what i was saying i thought it was better that they made percy doubtful and sort of resentful of the gods because it would be nice to actually watch percy grapple with the prophecy and whether or not he wants to be a person to bring olympus to its knees that is going to be 
very interesting and I think the show actually does it better all the other casting discussions I think is just that people you know like the typical fandom stuff like people too wrapped up on fandom like I don't care that they didn't put a dialogue from like page 100 they only had but so much time now that they got renewed for season two and now that we know that Disney basically came out and said that they're going to invest a bunch more money the monsters are going to get better everything's going to get better shout out to those three little thespians they made me scream um specifically the girl who plays annabeth chase yeah watching a little black girl play annabeth period we won that's all for this week's episode have a happy valentine's day you guys love you very much as always please rate this show email me and if you have any sound suggestions you can message me directly i will answer love you so much see you next week Bye bye